Hey everyone. Before we get started, I wanted to say a couple of things, of course, just like always. First, I want to apologize for some audio issues with this episode. I've done my best to even them out, but I was battling a defective microphone, and as I was recording over a couple of nights, my little girl was sick, and you could hear her coughing over the monitor. I've gotten it cleaned up as best I can, but I'm sorry. I also wanted to mention that if you're interested in supporting the show, visit us on Facebook or at findyourgods.com, but most importantly, there are ways you can show your support that don't require you to sign up for Squarespace or Blue Apron or audible.com. This episode is exploring the myth of hermaphroditus, and it seemed appropriate to me to mention a couple of charities that I think are worth your support. The first of these, Interact, is an organization committed to raising intersex visibility, empowering young intersex advocates, and promoting laws and policies that protect intersex youth. You can find out more about them at interactadvocates.org. And the other charity I wanted to mention is one that we've talked about before, RAIN the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. They're the country's largest anti-sexual assault organization. They do important work, and they are well worth a donation. I'll include a link on the website to both of these charities. And, of course, keep in mind that the best donation you can make is to someone in your community, whether it's a women's shelter, a youth organization, or a support hotline. There are so many places that need help, whether it's a bag of canned goods, a monetary donation, or just an hour of your time. These little things can make a massive difference in someone else's life. So please, consider showing your support in your community, as well as with these organizations that I've mentioned here this week. Okay, that being said, let's get started. Now shall I tell of things that change? New being out of old. Since you, O gods, gods, o gods created mutable, created mutable arts, created mutable arts and gifts. Give me the voice. The voice. Give me the voice. The voice to tell the shifting. The shifting story of the world. Not too far from where I live, there's a place where two pools sit side by side in a small forest. I know the place well, I visit it often, and I can close my eyes and I'm there. The trees swaying gently overhead, a dirt path stretching off through the trees behind me, leading ahead to a meadow on the other side of the forest. And standing there under the trees, I can turn my head to the left and I see the smaller pool, bright and dappled in green light filtering down through the trees. The pool is no bigger than 20 feet across, maybe 
another 30 feet wide. The water is clear and bright, fed by a small trickle of a stream that wanders down between the roots of the trees. It's a good place, peaceful and old. If I turn my head to the right, I can see the other pool, broader and deeper than its sister, darker as well, lower down at the base of a slope that falls away from the path, steep enough that the trees on that side strain to fight upwards at odd angles. The trees who have lost the struggle lie rotting at the bottom, half submerged in the dark water, clouded over with moss and shadows and rot. As much as the upper pool is bright, the lower one is dark. While the one resonates peace and safety, the other has a watchful, quiet menace. Both of the pools are patient. One of them, though, feels like it has been waiting for much longer, and sooner or later that low, dark pool will get what it wants. To the ancient Greeks, the concept that natural phenomenon and places, forests, trees, hills, stones, and yes, pools, these things were more than scenery or landmarks or picnic spots. These were places to respect, to even fear. Places where you would do well to pass by quickly, leaving a small offering if you had one, and keeping your children close as you did. Each tree, each stone, each pond or pool, in the world of the Greeks, these things were likely to have a watchful guardian, a wild spirit that, for whatever reason, was associated with or attached to that spot. It was, for all intents and purposes, their home, and, in some cases, their temple, where gifts and offerings could be left to ensure safe passage or blessings on the surrounding land. When we visit the forest I mentioned at the beginning of these episodes, my wife and I have made it a tradition to bring along a bag of apples, leaving them along the way as we follow the path through the trees. We leave them for the deer, of course, but we leave them with reverence and respect and even with gratitude for whatever other spirits might also walk there. The Greeks called them nymphs, these spirits of the wild places, protectors of tree and pool and stone. They saw them as minor, albeit powerful in their own way, natural deities, local gods that the Greeks did not dare to displease or disrespect. Now, the nymphs occupy an interesting place in the ecosystem of Greek mythology. Uh, ecosystem might not be the right word here. Mythosystem, maybe? Now, nymph is an interesting word. It comes to us from the Greek for bride or young wife. Now, nymphs were considered daemon, that is, spirits who were less powerful and more contained than the gods, typically confined to a specific object or a location. Some scholars believe that they were proto-gods, the raw material out of which the gods themselves were formed. Regardless, nymphs were often employed by the Olympians in raising children. Hermes, for instance, was raised by nymphs. And so was the infant Zeus. He was hidden among them on the island of Crete so that his father Kronos couldn't find him. 
Nymphs are, as a rule, female, and they tend to be fairly aggressive, whether in their protection of their sacred spot or, in some stories, more aggressive in their appetites. Now, it seems to me, and I have nothing to back this up, but it seems to me that nymphs are the female equivalent of satyrs, those male voraciously sexual beings typically associated with a particular locale in nature. Although, I'm also told that many nymphs, they pledge their allegiance to the virgin lunar goddess of the hunt, Artemis. Artemis, of course, is the twin sister of Apollo. Together as sun and moon, they represent the symmetry so common in the old myths, the marriage of night and day, light and dark, silver and gold. Those who pledged their allegiance to Artemis were devoted followers of her pursuits, most particularly the hunt and contests. And emulating her divine purity, they also adopted her celibacy as well. All except one nymph, according to Ovid in his Metamorphoses. There was one nymph who didn't want to follow Artemis, one who wasn't keen for the hunt or passionate about competition, one who preferred instead to sit by her pool in leisure and keep one eye on her shimmering reflection in the rippling mirror that bore her name, combing her hair and reflecting on which style best suited her. And there reflected in the ripples of her shimmering glass, she saw a man. The nymph, of course, was named Salmasis. And the man, well, he was just a boy, really. He was named Hermaphroditus, after his parents, Hermes and Aphrodite. The boy, he was only 15 years old. He had struck out on his own, leaving Mount Ida, where he had been raised, by nymphs, as a point of fact, and setting out to explore the unfamiliar world. He was, in essence, a tourist, wandering, sightseeing, and marveling at every new place he discovered. And eventually, his path led him to the Pool of Salmasis. Maybe he was weary after his travels. Maybe he just marveled at the crystal-clear shining waters. Whatever the reason, he stopped for a while there by the pool, and so he fell under the eye of the nymph Salmasis, who was immediately taken with the beauty of this fair stranger. Striking her best and most alluring pose, she called out to him, Oh boy, most worthy to be taken for a god, if you're a god, why you'd be Cupid. But if you're not a god, if you're just mortal, why, blessed are the parents who produced you. Happy your brother, and fortunate indeed your sister, if you have one, and the nurse who gave her breast to you. But far more blessed than any one of these is your betrothed, if you're already promised to another. If that's the case, I'll bed you secretly. But if there is no other, I would be the one to share a wedding couch with you. The boy blushed. He knew nothing of these matters, and despite his parentage, he had no experience in romance. And at his blushing, the nymph's blood quickened further. She sidled her way around to his side of the pool, pestering him for a kiss. Just a kiss, 
a friendly kiss like the kind a sister gets, getting closer with each entreaty, ready to pounce when she had him in range. But the boy stood back, demanding that she stop her approach, shaking off her seductions, threatening to leave her there alone if she did not. The nymph retreats, and as she withdraws, she invites him to stay. The place is yours. I freely yield it to you. And so saying, she gave him one last seductive, disappointed pout and pretended to depart. But she didn't leave. She hid herself to one side in a nearby thicket, her eyes blazing with hunger in the deep shadows beneath the trees. Now that the nymph was gone, the boy could relax. He circled the pool, the sun on his head, the grass soft under his feet. See him there, testing the water, stretching his long brown leg to touch the shimmering surface with his toe. And unseen, Salmasis shudders like the surface of the water, her skin rippling outward from her very core. The boy cocks his head, looks up to see a passing bird, a faint, unfamiliar cry in the air, but there's nothing. He shrugs and lays down next to the pool, running his fingers across the surface, letting his fingertips drag through the water, sometimes laying his hand on the silvered skin, floating it there at first and then gently pressing deeper, letting the water fold around his hand. The nymph is a quivering shadow among the shadowed grove. She can smell the sharp resin of the evergreen trees, their tangy sap thick in her fists as she clutches the fallen needles and presses them to her breasts, pinpricks of pleasure stippling her skin. As his hand rises and falls on the tepid water, so too her body rises and clenches, twisting over on itself like a shrimp in the pot her skin ivory and pink, blushing and boiling with rippling waves of pleasure washing over her. She hears a splash and raises her head. She sees him now standing up to his waist in the pool, drawing up handfuls of the shining water, her water, to bathe his chest, his long neck and shoulders, his golden hair. She does not need to look to see his clothes abandoned on the grass. She can feel him there, every inch of his lithe, vigorous youth caressed by the water, her water, as he turns and lays back, raising his face and golden body to the sun. He floats across the surface of her eyes, every inch of him a god. Blessed are the parents who made you, she murmurs, her strength returning, her thirst rising. She would tip the entire pool to her lips if she could, drink the bowl of the spring dry, and swallow him whole. Slide him down her throat like shimmering cool wine. Hold him deep inside her for all time. There is no more pretense. There's no more hiding now. She breaks through the pines, heedless of the sting of the needles on the skin of her thighs, her belly, her cheeks. She strides across the grass, her eyes smarting from the light on the water, the boy drifting there as though the sun above were filling him with warmth and light, 
Her own shift falls from her without a thought, like a snakeskin, and lies twisted across his garments, the ones he abandoned earlier on the grass. And then she is in the water. She is in the water, and she is the water, and he is in the water, and she is the water, and he is in her, and the water has him, just as she has him. Like an octopus, she latches onto him and squeezes him to her, beak snapping hungrily. Like water, she consumes him and draws him deep into her, refusing to let her fugitive lover escape. Willful boy, you can resist, but you can't escape me. He thrashes like a swimmer captured in the riptide, desperate and breathless. But for every limb that he manages to pull free, her own tighten even closer and envelop him once again. And then he hears her voice as bright and shining as the waters, like a bell it rings from tree to tree and then rises to the open sky above. You gods! And the boy feels the attention of those above. Two faces leaning down to look upon them there in the silver water. Two faces pushing down to watch as the nymph's voice rises to meet the ears of his mother and father. You gods, make this unruly tangle a single clear form. Pour him into me and me into him as one cup of water so that stirred, intermingled, we cannot be separated or distilled by any art or will that we may never part, neither I from him nor he from me. And the gods, gazing down, grant her wish and avert their eyes, mourning together the loss of their son while at the same time welcoming their new daughter. Because the two indeed became one, the chaotic tangle calmed itself, fusing and folding, forms and faces running together like two streams, merging into one, moving always forward together and never separating again, fully mingled into a new form, something that can no longer be called by the previous names. Neither male nor female, but nonetheless seeming to be both. Face and figure now, male and female, grafted together. Her softness, the gentle curves of her ripples and waves, softly shining. And the stronger parts of him, grafted on, rising up from her subtler forms to declare itself proving that the fusion of these two, this marriage, was complete and completed by the gods, and not even the gods could undo it. And those two that had entered the silver cauldron separately, distinct forms were gone, and now a single form floated there, writhing under the sun, whether in passion or horror, it was impossible to tell. 
But it was the voice of Hermaphroditus that called out. It was his hands, so soft and pale now like a woman's, his hands that reached, that clutched at the sky, and his voice rang out, so strange in his new, slender throat. And once again, the faces of those gods, his parents, came down close to their son as he invoked his birthright and begged their parental power to charge this his curse. O oh, father and mother after whom I'm named, grant me as consolation this one boon. May any man who sets foot in this pool depart from it without virility, instantly softened by the water's touch. And his parents, nodding before they turned away, granted his wish, and they infused the fountain of his undoing with the power and effect he begged of them. And the boy, and the nymph, Hermaphroditus, and Salmasus, what became of him, of her, of them? What clothes did they choose from the tangle in the grass when at last they emerged from the pool? What direction did they walk when they turned their back on the shining water, following the path on unfamiliar feet still tender from their transformation, their metamorphosis? Perhaps more than any other myth in Ovid's Metamorphoses, the story of what happened at the Pool of Salmasus is a puzzle, a secret to be decoded. The story itself falls into that gray area where we find Baucis and Philemon, Pygmalion and others. Just like those, many scholars believe that the story of Hermaphroditus and Salmasus was created, invented by Ovid but not out of whole cloth. The Pool of Salmasus is a real location with its own fascinating folklore. And the god Hermaphroditus, of course, existed long before Ovid. Evidence of his cult can be traced far back in Greece's history, and even further, if some scholars are to be believed. All the way back to Eastern religions, in which the Hermaphrodite has powerful spiritual significance. Now, Let's talk about vocabulary for a moment. The physical reality of hermaphroditism is not something that I take lightly. Even the term hermaphrodite is medically dubious and fraught with stigma and misconception for hundreds if not thousands of years. The general perception of the term is a literal one, the presence of both male and female genitalia in a single individual. But the medical reality is far more complex and varied, so much so that I simply don't have the time here to document each variation, and also that's way off topic, even for me. This is not to be dismissive of the subset of people who have already endured stigma and dismissal for their entire lives, but my focus is on the myth, the metaphysical, the resonance of these symbols and stories. I'm no social justice warrior, but I do believe in treating people with compassion and respect, and to that end, I'm going to do my best to talk about these themes and their meaning with an equal measure of both. 
We'll come back to this in a bit, but for the time being, I'll be using the name Hermaphroditus and the pronoun he when speaking about the god. But when I'm discussing the medical side of things and the physical traits, I'll use the term intersex, which I'm told is more acceptable these days. All right? Cool? Moving on. First off, many accounts reckon that Hermes and Aphrodite were brother and sister. Some suggest that they were twins as well, since they share a birthday, the fourth day of the lunar month. There's that symmetry again in mythology, like Artemis and Apollo, brother and sister, two twins, born together. Incidentally, that fourth day of the lunar month is also considered sacred to the institution of marriage, and, as some accounts suggest, it was also on that day that Hermaphroditus visited the pool of Salmasus. Now, Aphrodite, as you might remember from episode 5, had a stronghold of worship in the city of Amathus in Cyprus. And it's interesting to note that a statue of Aphrodite was discovered there, one that was male, with a beard, Aphroditus, which led some to speculate that possibly Aphrodite was once worshipped in both male and female forms. So this sort of thing might have run in the family, as it were. And then there's Hermaphroditus and his various siblings. Priapus, in particular, um, stands out. He was a child of Hermes and Aphrodite and a rustic fertility god whose most distinguishing characteristic was, shall we say, an impressive and sizable male member. And when your other brother is Eros, firing his arrows at anything with a heartbeat, well, no wonder Hermaphroditus wanted to leave home and strike out on his own. At home, he'd been raised by nymphs, so he was familiar with their ways, presumably. He would have known, even at only 15, what to expect. Nymphs are beautiful, youthful, and amorous, sometimes aggressively so. So, there is some danger in thinking he should have known better. Once he encountered Salmasus, he shouldn't have trusted her to leave, shouldn't have disrobed, shouldn't have let his guard down. Maybe he really wanted it, but regretted it afterwards. He was asking for it. But those arguments are no more valid than when they're applied in our day and age to, say, a woman who's been assaulted. So, shut up with that nonsense. He was only 15. Imagine his terror. So young, wandering in the world for the first time without a clue as to what dangers or delights might be waiting for him. Imagine his terror. He knew nothing of romance, despite his family and parentage. Salmasus was like a wave rolling over a new swimmer, utterly out of his depth. And there's another little bit of tragedy as well, one that is true of all who are assaulted or molested at a young age. Hermaphroditus never had the opportunity to come to love on his own terms, in his own time, 
all that was taken from him beneath the waves. And he found himself so transformed, transmuted into something so unfamiliar and new, he must have been terrified. And any hope of a typical, usual romance was lost to him forever. Salmasis is a wild spirit, an offshoot of the satyr with all of those hungers. Her only thought was to consume the boy for herself, her hunger, her thirst so great that she raises her voice to the gods and makes a desperate, insane plea. So order it that he will not part from me, nor I from him. There are so many different ways to put that into effect, so many variations. Why this fusion, this melding of forms? I mean, tie him to a tree. Give her extra strength so she can hold him there. Shrink him down so she can pop him in her pocket or wear him on a chain around her neck. Or just put the divine whammy on him and enchant him to her. Doesn't someone have a bow and arrow designed to do precisely that? She would have been delighted with any of these, I'm sure. But this grotesque solution, this gift and curse conjoined together? There's no indication whatsoever that Salmasis was pleased by how the gods answered her prayers. In fact, she is wiped away completely after the transformation. She is never named and never speaks again. The price she pays for her boon to be granted isn't merely a, pardon the term, perverse interpretation of her prayer. It's a complete eclipse of her entire identity. She has, in essence, been reduced to a set of primary sexual characteristics. Isn't it always the way? Part of me wonders where she went. Part of me wonders if there is even enough of her left to regret her wish, or has she been completely diluted? Nothing more than a stain, a, a tint. Is this what she wanted? I don't think so. She pays a price for her wish that is far out of scale with what she got in return. Were the gods punishing her? If so, she's not the only one. It's clear in the text that Hermaphroditus is horrified by the transformation, and he calls upon the gods, his parents, to grant him a, well, like the transformation, it's an oddly perverse solution he has to the problem at hand. Instead of begging to be restored, he compounds his affliction exponentially. Make any man who sets foot in this pool depart from it without vitality, instantly softened by the water's touch. He's basically asking that his affliction be spread to any and all who come into contact with the pool. He's patient zero, wanting to spread his disease far and wide. It's kind of a dick move. There's a strange logic behind it that I can't quite figure out. I mean... He doesn't wish to be transformed back. He can't wish for the nymph to be cursed because that would mean wishing for himself to be cursed since they are now one being. But wanting to spread the affliction to others, to innocent people, that's nuts. And again, kind of a dick move. 
A lot of the sources I read when I was preparing for this episode seemed to jump to the knee-jerk interpretation that this myth is merely one of those tall tales invented to explain a naturally occurring phenomenon. In this case, the presence of intersex individuals. But they're wrong. That's nothing more than the typical modern arrogance, assuming that the ancients were children clinging to fairy tales to explain their world. These scholars dismiss the deep insight, knowledge, and wisdom that we have carried down from the ages to this present day. The folklore surrounding the Pool of Salmasis, again, we're talking about a real place. The folklore long predates Ovid. The general legend surrounding the pool was a strong belief that anyone who bathed in it or drank the water would be made effeminate. The legend doesn't mention sexuality or genitalia, no transformation to an intersexual state, just that men would be emasculated and softened. Oddly enough, no one seems to talk about what would happen to a woman if she happened to bathe there. But there is a source for the legend, an historical event that some scholars believe led to the slow creep of folklore building up around the pool. They point to the Roman author Vitruvius for an explanation. Listen to what he says. There is a mistaken idea that this spring infects those who drink of it with an unnatural lewdness. It will not be out of place to explain how this idea came to spread throughout the world from a mistake in the telling of the tale. It cannot be that the water makes men effeminate and unchaste, as it is said to do. For the spring is of remarkable clearness and excellent in flavor. The fact is, when Melas and Arvanius came there and founded a colony together, they drove out the barbarians. These took refuge in the mountains and, uniting there, used to make raids, plundering the Greeks and laying their country waste in a cruel manner. Later, one of the colonists, to make money, set up a well-stocked shop near the spring because the water was so good, and the way in which he carried it on attracted the barbarians. So they began to come down, one at a time, and to meet with society, and thus they were brought back of their own accord, giving up their rough and savage ways for the delights of Greek customs. Hence, this water acquired its peculiar reputation, not because it really induced unchastity, but because these barbarians were softened by the charm of civilization. So the barbarian is softened. The pool is the source of this, and the legend grows over time. Ovid is the first to marry Hermaphroditus and Salmasus in myth. There is no clear explanation why he does so, and, as I've said before, there's no precedent for this connection in previous texts. Some scholars believe that there is a natural blurring of the boundaries at work here, mythological drift, echoes of other tales like Narcissus or Hylas, that these are tales being told, within tales being told, and so they take on their own identity and shape. As with most things, I tend to begin with a literal reading of a myth and do my best to see it through that lens, but this one is difficult because of the complicated backstory, the history, the merging of the two streams, 
Salmasis, and Hermaphroditus. Since we don't know why Ovid chose to merge them, we have to set aside the literal and dip a little deeper below the surface. Hermaphroditus and Salmasis are merged, fused into a single being, a being specifically with softened limbs and without virility, and one in whom both sexes were. Now, my reading of the story? I don't see it gets specific with regards to genitalia. Ovid just doesn't go there. You can make the assumption that he's being delicate or coy, but I think, given how specific he gets with other details throughout Metamorphoses, and how he doesn't shy away from sexuality, even if he couches it in figurative language, I think he doesn't go there because that specific aspect of the transformation, the presence of male and female genitalia, just wasn't a part of his myth. Because virtually every story, statue, or painting of Hermaphroditus from before or following Ovid doesn't depict an intersex individual. No, what is most commonly represented is a female form, the softened limbs, with undeniably male genitalia. That's the story Ovid was telling, it seems to me, particularly if you take into account the folklore of the Pool of Salmasis. The transformation is that softening, that effeminate transformation, and the plumbing has little to do with it. And his description of Hermaphroditus after the transformation doesn't quite line up with what typically people assume. No, it's more like he's talking about an androgynous person rather than an intersexual one. By the way, I know I'm making some strong statements here based on my own research, reading, and instinct, but I'm happy to be proven wrong by actual experts and scholars out there, so feel free to kick me around on Facebook or Twitter as I most likely deserve. The softening of the limbs, the effeminate transformation, these things are depicted as diminishing, inferior, something shameful for a man to endure. That's not a surprise, really, given the patriarchal and unabashedly misogynist tone of much of Ovid's writing, and the time and decidedly masculine culture in which he lived. But there's a disconnect in the story that I have difficulty reconciling. Before his transformation, Hermaphroditus is not depicted as particularly masculine. First of all, he's only a child of 15. Already a few steps down the path to puberty, but by no means a full-grown man. And his weaknesses in the text are many. His traipsing through the world recalls a child wandering away from a babysitter with little thought or awareness of the dangers. And when Salmasis first proclaims her admiration, he blushes like a maiden. Ovid says he is beautiful and pure as ivory, a blushing apple waiting to be plucked. I mean to say, the kid wasn't exactly Gary Cooper or John Wayne, so this whole business of softening and emasculation doesn't sound like that much of a magic trick to me. He was already mostly there. Maybe I'm wrong. Let's take a look at where this tale falls in the larger narrative of Metamorphoses. 
The story of Salsas and Hermaphroditus is the third in a series of stories told by the daughters of Minyas and Thebes. These three young women decide not to participate in the celebration of the festival of Dionysus, preferring instead to sit and spin and weave at their looms, while the rest of the city celebrates the gods' holy rites. Listen to what Ovid has to say. Only the daughters of Minyas keep within, spoiling the new god's feast with their untimely spinning and weaving, the diurnal tasks they and their servants are kept busy with. One sister, lightly drawing thread, observes, Though other women cease their work and hasten to his concocted rites, a superior divinity has kept us in our places. Pallas Athena. No reason why we shouldn't lighten the useful labor of these hands by taking our turns at telling stories. Such give and take will pass the time more quickly and be a kindness to those listening. Now, it is telling that they invoke Pallas Athena, preferring instead the cool-minded, celibate goddess to that intoxication and orgiastic worship often attributed to the god of wine and revelry. The city might be partying, but these three sisters have work to do. Really, it's an inversion of Salmasis and her disinterest in the pursuits of Artemis. When she turns her back on the celibate goddess's worship, and chooses instead the carnal hungers. Their labors at the wheel and loom recall as well the morai, the three weird sisters, those who spin, measure, and cut the threads of fate. As we live our lives, so they toil. And who's to say they don't gossip a bit about the lives of those they spin, measure, and cut? So the three sisters sit, spinning yarn, and spinning yarns, to pass the time and amuse each other. The story of Hermaphroditus is the third and final tale told. The sister who does the telling is named Alsothoe, a name which, according to the scholar Frederick All, is semantically related to the Greek word for strength or force, as well as the word for quick or nimble. So her name is a semantic marriage of these two concepts, which all sees as a sign of the wit and intelligence in Ovid's writing. In her name, the poet merges the two concepts which are symbolically married in the story she tells. That is, the male strength, force, and vigor is merged with the quick and nimble waters and the nymph who inhabits them. According to all, Ovid is full of this sort of semantic wordplay, a clever little layer of meaning more or less hidden from most casual readers today, certainly hidden from me. But All is neither the first nor the only scholar to explore hidden meanings and mysteries encoded into Ovid's metamorphoses, particularly the story of Hermaphroditus. From Carl Jung to the alchemists of the medieval world, there is a long tradition of seeking out these hidden, occult meanings and texts, be they psychological or metaphysical. The story of Hermaphroditus in particular has deep significance for those seeking to uncover the secret chemical marriage at the heart of all alchemical studies. But that's a path we're going to explore in our next episode.
Hermaphroditus is referred to sometimes as the second Cupid or second Eros. As such, his power and resonance in myth is at least not to be taken lightly or played for laughs. There is much that we can learn from his story, so much that resonates for us, chiming across the many facets of human gender, sexuality, and identity. Hermaphroditus is a man, feminized and softened. Some would consider him weak. Others see him as a symbol of enlightenment and balance. The daughters of Minyas, sitting at their weaving, are disinterested in the festival raging outside their doors, and while they couldn't care less, a god disrespected is a god revenged. As the day wears on, and evening approaches, things begin to change. Suddenly, a dissonant outburst from unseen timbres, flutes, and cymbals broke upon them with a loud, disturbing clamor. The air now smelled of saffron and of myrrh, and unbelievably, their weaving greened. Some of their hanging tapestries burst forth with ivy, while others turned to grapevines, and what had been lately the unliving threads are vine sprouts now, while soft vine tendrils trail from the distaff, and brightly clustered grapes now seek to match the woven purple dye. The day was ended, and that time had come which you could say was neither light nor dark, uncertain night, when yet some day remains. It seemed as though the house suddenly shuddered, and unaccountably the oil lamps flared, and blazing torches lit up every room, and howling all around them everywhere were the false images of savage beasts. Meanwhile, the sisters had been seeking refuge in various places from the glaring flames, and as they tried to slip into the shadows, a slender membrane glides across their limbs, and meager wings enclose their withered arms. Darkness conceals from them the true extent of the great changes now come over them. Not downy feathers, but translucent wings sustain their flight, and when they try to speak, their much-diminished bodies now emit only the tiniest of voices, telling their woes in little high-pitched squeaks. Shunning the woods, they congregate in houses, nocturnal flyers fearful of the day, creatures named for the time they first appear, Vespertilians, or, as we say, bats. Boundaries are dangerous places to be sometimes, and the boundary between night and day is no exception. That gray hour of evening, when light and dark are suspended in delicate balance, where male and female overlap, where Artemis and Apollo drift into each other's orbits. At the violet hour, when the eyes and back turn upward from the desk, when the human engine waits like a taxi throbbing, waiting, I, Tiresias, though blind, throbbing between two lives, old man with wrinkled female breasts, can see at the violet hour 
the evening hour that arrives homeward and brings the sailor home from sea, the typist home at tea time, clears her breakfast, lights her stove, and lays out food in tins. Out of the window perilously spread, her drying combinations touched by the sun's last rays, on the divan are piled at night her bed, stockings, slippers, camisoles, and stays. I, Tiresias, old man with wrinkled dugs, perceived the scene and foretold the rest. I, too, awaited the expected guest. He, the young man carbuncular, arrives, a small house agent's clerk with one bold stare, one of the low on whom assurance sits as a silk hat on a Bradford millionaire. His time is now propitious, as he guesses. The meal is ended, she is bored and tired, endeavors to engage her in caresses which still are unreproved if undesired. Flushed and decided, he assaults at once. Exploring hands encounter no defense. His vanity requires no response and makes a welcome of indifference. And I, Tiresias, have foresuffered all, enacted on that same divan or bed, I who have sat by Thebes below the wall, and walked among the lowest of the dead. Bestows one final patronizing kiss, and gropes his way, finding the stairs unlit. She turns and looks a moment in the glass, hardly aware of her departed lover, her brain allows one half-formed thought to pass. Well, now that's done, and I'm glad it's over. That's T.S. Eliot, The Wasteland, of course. The Violet Hour. Violet, of course, being a blend of red and blue. Strong alchemy at work there, Mr. Eliot. And, of course, at that point in the century... The color violet was also sometimes used as code to describe those effeminate young men who just never seemed to settle down, preferring instead to live as confirmed bachelors. And Tiresias, the storyteller within the story, well, it's a poem, but still, old Tiresias, who, of course, was the renowned seer and prophet who was transformed into a woman because he displeased Hera. He stayed a woman for seven years, and he even married and had children before the curse was lifted and he returned to his masculine state. Tiresias of Thebes, one of those who straddles the boundaries, looking at both worlds, moving between this world and the other world, gazing into the past as well as the future, playing the role of mediator between the gods and humanity, shifting from male to female and then back again. And, as such, he represents that same ideal that those seekers of occult knowledge pursued so doggedly in their alchemical studies. Occult, of course, means something that is hidden. Sometimes, it just takes a blind man to find it. And that's our show for this week. We'll pick up where we left off with 
Hermaphroditus, the alchemists, and the chemical marriage in our next episode. Until then, thank you for listening. Take care of each other. And may your gods bless you. Find Your Gods is written, performed, and produced by T.M. Camp. The contents of this episode are copyright 2016 and may not be reproduced, transmitted, or otherwise copied without T.M. Camp's express written permission. Failure to do so is a violation of international copyright law, and you will find over time that the boundaries of your life, your soul, your psyche, blur beyond recognition until you can no longer discover the path that you should be on, wandering deep into the shadows of this world, never to return again to solid, substantial form. Visit us online at findyourgods.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash findyourgods. You can also find us on Twitter at findyourgods. And we're even on Pinterest, Instagram, and Tumblr because, you know, why not?